I did speak to those that are in St. Andrew's Hall, and I want them to feel welcome. And those that are worshiping online, we welcome you as well. If you're here and you have your Bibles, turn to your text. Today's lesson is 2 Samuel 23. It's found on page 324 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. We spent over two and a half years studying the life of David, and we're nearing the end. Chapter 23 and 24 will be the finish of our study. Your legacy is the summary of your life's purpose. We will reflect on David's legacy and we'll reflect on the next three weeks the call to finish well. Finishing well is the last chapter of one's legacy and it's difficult because it's difficult to continue to see the finish line or to embrace the right finish line in finish line living. We come to David's moment, these last words. They probably weren't the last literal words of David, but they were the summary, his oracle, his last summary of life in service to God. And David tells us, my legacy is that the Lord called me into his service and he kept me. He called me when Samuel anointed David to be king and he kept him all the way to the end through hardship, through difficulties, through failures and setbacks, through betrayals and through discouragement. David is a massive character in the Bible. We've studied first and second Samuel. He's referenced in first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. We know that he wrote at least 73 of the Psalms, probably more. And David is referenced in 1400 different references in the Bible. Just to know the massive character that he is and his importance for us to understand the work of Jesus Christ, the Gospels in the New Testament begin this way. Matthew says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In some ways, Matthew is saying that Jesus Christ himself stands, humanly speaking, in the footprints of David and Abraham. And we come to this point in David's life where he's at the end. And this week we'll look at the lessons that we learn about finishing well. And it'll be the lessons we learn from David about hope. Next week we'll look in chapter 23 and talk about the lessons we learn about finishing well from the life of David. And those lessons will be about love. And then the final week in chapter 24, the lessons we learn about finishing well and the lessons of grace. Hear the oracle of David who declares, I'm leaving this world. I'm very near the end of this world. And I'm leaving this world and I'm not sour. And I'm not sulking 
or sorrowful, I'm going to leave this world singing. And I'm going to leave this world smiling. And I'm going to leave this world satisfied. What does David know about God that we need to know? What does David know about the gospel and the work of God and the hearts of the redeemed that we need to know? What does David know about this world? We know that trouble remains for David and his family even when he's gone. We know that trouble remains for the people of God even after they bury David. We know that trouble remains in the world and yet even though trouble remains, David says, I'm singing. I'm full of hope. David says, I'm smiling. I'm full of love. David says, I'm satisfied. I'm full of grace. We need to know what David knows. It's instructive for us because as we move closer and closer to the finish line, each of us, we need to be very clear on what that finish line is all about. We'll learn from our text here that because God, his favor and his faithfulness is true in our life purposes, we can live confidently with comfort and securely in his eternal purposes because God's favor and faithfulness is secure for us. We can live in confidence and comfort. Read with me as I read this oracle beginning in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Abraham, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will, not, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? But worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. We do ask, Father, that you would open our eyes by the Holy Spirit, that we would see marvelous things in your word, that we would see Jesus Christ high and lifted up, and even as we partake in this supper, that we would see the finished work of Christ that secures and guarantees for us that we can smile no matter what our circumstances. We can smile no matter how close we are to death. We can smile with hope no matter what we face because we belong to you. Give us that assurance, we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Most of you know that my early ministry for many years was with college students working with next generation leaders 
And one of the primarily roles that I played in the life of college students is helping them, particularly the believers in Christ, discern God's will for their life. Now, we did evangelism and discipleship. We taught students to study the Bible. We developed them as leaders. But we spent a lot of time talking about the call of God on their life. And I think I thought that that's an important time to talk about the call of God. I would speak to them about that as a believer, you're not simply to take a career path that gets you to the next phase of life and contribution. You're to discover a calling path. It's a path that God has laid out for you. You don't create it, you discover it as a follower of God. And we would talk about how do you discover that I actually wrote a book on calling, and they initially published about 250 copies. After we distributed about 150, I gathered all the rest of them up and put them away and sent refunds out because I didn't like anything that I said in that book. It's the last book that I ever wrote, actually. <laughs> but what I found interesting is that as I've moved through life in the church and ministry, the call of God is not just something you decide or determine early on in your life. As I talk to older people who were facing death, they would wrestle with, how do I finish well? How do I fulfill the call of God at this phase in my life with these ailments, with these limitations? I would talk to young families where they've been ravaged by divorce or betrayal and a mother taking care of children would talk about, what does the call of God mean for me here? And then those who are at that midlife crisis, they'd hit a wall and they, maybe because of hardships or suffering or difficulty, they began to worry that they couldn't trust God. They would doubt God's goodness. They're wrestling with the call of God. All of us, at whatever stage we find ourselves, have to embrace the call of God for our lives. As you look at David's life, we've learned that David knows that problems exist in this life, but problems are not primarily outward or others-oriented. They're not circumstantial, primarily. David has taught us that problems primarily are inward. They're matters of trust and faith. They're matters of worship and joy, where we put our hopes, who we look to or what we look to for satisfaction. And we've learned from David that solutions are not outward or inward. Solutions are found when you live upward or Godward as you learn to live a life of praise. Think about the book of Ecclesiastes, likely Ecclesiastes was written by David's son, Solomon, and there came a crisis point in Solomon's life, a midlife of sorts where Solomon drifted from the Lord, and he began to doubt God's goodness, and he said, I'm going to find what life is all about, and it says that he searched for pleasure, he searched for possessions, he searched for power. And at the end of that search, he concluded, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Life is not found under the sun, he says. And then in Ecclesiastes 3, he turned inward and he searched 
Well, maybe there's an answer inwardly. Much of our modern culture thinks that the answer to all your unhappiness is found either through processing your unhappy feelings, through therapy, or choosing the best self that you can present. But our problems, excuse me, our solutions are not found inwardly. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says that God has placed eternity in our hearts, that we should not discover the purposes that God has for man. But the Ecclesiastes writer concludes by saying, this is a summary of all things. Fear God and keep his commandments. For in this is the duty of men. In many ways, discovering the call of God could simply be this. Open up your Bible, read your Bible, obey everything that you read, and you can't miss the will of God. In many ways, that's what the conversion to Christianity experience is all about. God opens up your eyes to his world, the salvation that he's given you in Jesus Christ, and he places within you a desire to live in obedience to him. Here David describes himself with four specific descriptions. And in those four descriptions, he gives us insight into what it means to live out the call of God in this world, to serve God as those who are filled with hope. The first thing he says is that as recipients of God's favor, we serve God in his sovereign foundations and choices. Notice the first description David gives of himself. He says, this is the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. He's in the lineage. Yes, he's an outsider, but he's in the lineage. It goes back to Abraham. Jesse's home was a place where David did learn of the promises of God, but in many ways, David was an outsider, even in his own home. When Samuel tells Jesse to gather all of his sons to discern which son is to be anointed king, Jesse doesn't even invite David to the inauguration. Then later, Jesse sends David down to the battle to take food to his brothers. His brothers despise him. It's clear that David is an outsider, even in his own home. Jesse has assigned him servant's tasks that put him in danger, and yet David learns as a son of Jesse, even though I'm not a favored son in my own family, I'm favored in God's eyes. After David defeats Goliath, Saul brings him in for a short time, but then Saul turns on David and tries to kill him and decides that he's public enemy number one. David is not even favored in all of Israel as he becomes a refugee. What do we learn about this? We learn that it is God's sovereign foundations in the family that he gives you and in the circumstances that he gives you that God's call begins to emerge. If you read Psalm 78, it says, God took David from the sheepfolds, from shepherding the flock to shepherd Israel, my people, and Jacob, my inheritance. God taught David and shaped his call from what we would call normal places through 
difficult times, he began to discover noble purposes. So God's call starts in normal places to discover noble tasks. This was a powerful issue, or this is a powerful clarification that took place in the Reformation. Because in the Reformation, the call of God was exclusive to those that were the clergy. And Luther and Calvin and others discovered the priest, or rediscovered the priesthood of every believer that were all called to a normal but noble task of serving the God, serving the Lord. So motherhood and common uh, jobs and work and everyday duties are places where God's call is advanced. Secondly, we see here that David is raised up on high. That's the phrase that he uses. David is saying, I was the son of Jesse, raised up on high. I've been given a platform. I've been given a divine platform that God would use me in his call. Every place that God positions the believer is a divine platform. And it's a place where God raises you up in order to bring him glory. Oftentimes we think of a platform in a worldly sense. The person who's the president of the bank, the person who's achieved certain academic accomplishments. But God has raised every believer up on high, given you a divine platform. The Bible says that every Christian has spiritual gifts. You have design, desires, and abilities that only you can do in the kingdom and God has uniquely fitted you with those gifts to fulfill the divine platform that he's given you. Think about David. It doesn't say, I climbed my way to the top. It doesn't say, I fought my way and beat all the odds, the odds to the top. It says, God raised me up. God gifted me with his favor. He positioned me with abilities in order that from that platform, I might speak of his praise. But not all these platforms are easy or favored platforms. When David was tending the sheep, he was protecting against wolves and predators, but it was a divine platform. When his father sent him to take food to his brothers, a menial task, it was a divine platform. When Saul took him into his own court and asked him to be a counselor who would soothe him with song. It was a divine platform. When Saul sought to kill him and put him on the run as a refugee, it was a divine platform. When he lived in caves and formed a band of men into followers who were despised and in debt and in despair, Samuel tells us, it was a divine platform platform. Do you see that each of us who've been called to serve Christ have been given normal and noble task in a divine platform? Matthew 25 says that each in the parables is given gifts. Now some are given five, some are given two, some are given one. But even though the abilities are not the same, the responsibility to faithfulness is the same. Each of these who have been given gifts are responsible 
to be faithful. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, you'll recall that Eric Little tells his sister Jenny, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now that statement is Eric explaining to Jenny that he is going to compete in the Olympics. Eric had been in training for missionary service. He was to go to China. And Jenny reminds Eric, God saved you and he made you for China. And now, by delaying this, are you delaying God's call? You recall in the movie he said, yes, Jenny, God made me for China. But when God made me, he made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He's saying that this is a platform, it's a moment that I believe that God wants me to step into in order to point the light of the gospel. Francis Schaeffer wrote a little book called No Little People. And he says in the book, each Christian has been given a rod of God, a place of service. Whether small or whether prominent, we must remember that there are no little people and there are no little places in God's sight. Only one thing, to be consecrated places, consecrated people in the places that God positions us. What about you this morning? Do you have a sense of a divine platform? It's part of understanding your call. But also we learn from David that there's another aspect of this divine call. It's, it's the crucible of hardship. When you think about David's life, it wasn't just his abilities. In fact, God used David mostly when he was facing hardship. God, or David turned to God more clearly when he had no other options in himself. And you think of David in the caves, David being betrayed, David having to show integrity and not harm the Lord's anointed. Oftentimes, hardships are the reason why many of us get out of service to God. We say, either God's abandoned me, or we say, it's much too difficult. Paul said that he prayed three times that the Lord would remove that thorn in the flesh. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient, for in weakness, power is made perfect. This is my divine platform. Your difficulty is my place to shine forth in your hardship. I've seen this over and over with many people in this church as they faced difficult health circumstances, difficult family circumstances, difficult um, uh, community circumstances with uh, losing jobs, broken friendships. In those moments, God uses this as a divine platform that we might point others to him. I was thinking about Johnny Erickson. You know, Johnny was a swimmer and she was diving into the water in a lake as a teenager and she hit a stump and broke her neck and she was paralyzed from the neck down. And she wrestled with God and she was very bitter for a long time. And yet God began to meet her and heal her, not her physical body, but heal her soul. And she began to embrace this divine platform. There's probably no person who's ever brought healing and hope of the gospel to people of disabilities than Johnny Erickson. 
I'm told that the largest unreached people group in the world are families with handicapped or disabled children, and this has become a divine platform to advance the mission of Christ. We serve Christ in his call because of his sovereign foundations, because of this divine platform, and through his enablement with his authority. Notice David says, he is the anointed Messiah of the God of Jacob. We know that when David was anointed, the Spirit of God rushed over him and filled him. And all through David's service, he was enabled and empowered by God's authority, not because of his ability, but because God's authority rested on him through the Spirit. We also know that he was judged because of his failure. And we'll see in this text that David recognizes that the Messiah of God, the Anointed One, it's going to have to be someone coming in my lineage. Genesis 35 told, God told Jacob that in your lineage, kings shall be raised up and they will rule and serve in the earth. And it's obvious that David knows that I'm not that king. David knew, if you read verses 3 through 5, the language itself is very clear. Yes, God will be faithful to his covenant, but I will not be the one who keeps his covenant. Look in verse three. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on the cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does my house stand with God alone? He has made an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure for will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire David knows it's unmistakable it's going to be someone coming behind me it's going to be another that will rule justly that will live faithfully for the kingdom has collapsed around David because of his sin but David is not without hope David is still secure this covenant is not dependent on his faithfulness. It's dependent on God's faithfulness. I was talking to someone at, uh, after the 830 service, and we were talking about John 10. What I love about John 10 as it relates to God's call is that John 10 tells us, my sheep hear my voice. God will guide you in discerning his call, but it says that no one can snatch us from the Father's hands. It's encouraging to me because... Jesus doesn't say, we will hold on to the Father's hands. It says that even when we are weak, no one can snatch us from the Father's hands. He's holding us securely by his covenant with his son, Jesus Christ. How do you know that God has good for you in the future? This table is the guarantee that God would sacrifice Jesus as the sign of the new covenant so that you can live securely in confidence and in comfort. What's the last characteristic of this call? David says, he said, I'm the sweet psalmist. He says, at the end of my life, I'm gonna be singing his song of praise. Now, most of us as we age don't become sweeter. We become more sour, more ornery, more angry, more disappointed, more frustrated. It takes a work of the gospel to become sweeter 
in your latter days. David is the sweet psalmist. Now, he's not singing his songs of praise. David is singing God's great deliverance in his song of praise. Acts chapter 2 actually says that David saw the anointed king that would not suffer decay. David saw in Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 that it's God himself that will redeem a people for himself. And he describes this covenant, look at it, it's everlasting. It's clear that he knows that it's not him. It's ordered in all things. God's plan is ordered at the counsel of his own will. And it is secure. It's secure for two things, what? To provide all my help and to provide all my desire. Do you see that? David is saying not only am I leaving this world singing, I'm leaving this world smiling and I'm leaving this world satisfied because God is faithful to his promise. As I think about our church going into the General Assembly this week, I would ask you to pray that we would see God's clear promise in such a way that it causes both unity and causes us to be strengthened in the task of fulfilling the Great Commission. I would ask you to pray for your, se your session as we wrestle over how do we pass the faith to all peoples and all generations at this time and place? How do we trust God and take steps of boldness in faith? I was last weekend in Blairsville baptizing my fifth grandchild, Samuel, and preaching at Grace Presbyterian Church. And I told that church about this congregation. I said, you know, I want to tell you what inspires me so much about serving as pastor of First Presbyterian Church, a church that's been here for over 200 years. The same thing that inspires me also challenges me. And it keeps me on my knees every day. I told them that 50 people in 1807 built a 1,200 seat sanctuary what did they know about God? What did they know about this world? They had you on their mind. What we enjoy and we flourish in, they saw 200 years ago. And that inspires me. But I'll tell you what, that challenges me. As we ask our session, even now, as we ask our denomination, what are we doing now if the Lord doesn't return in 200 years, that will bless the people of God 200 years from now in Augusta and around the world because we would live out the call of God on our lives. Let me remind you that it doesn't have to be heroic. It can be normal. It can be noble in being faithful in the places that God serves you. It can be a commitment to prayer. But let's ask the Lord to make us people that live out our call. I'll close with this. A member gave me this quote this week, and she was reminding me, do we tell our people to think about heaven? How often do we think about heaven? It's a quote from Jonathan Edwards, and I thought this is appropriate. David obviously saw heaven in clear sight. Edwards says it this way, to go to heaven is to fully enjoy God 
and to believe that it's infinitely better and the most pleasant of accommodations than anything that fathers and mothers or husbands or children or the company of earthly friends can provide. All that is just a shadow. In heaven, we will marvel at the enjoyment of God in substance. These will be scattered beams that we see him on the earth, but in heaven, he will shine brightly in our hearts like the sun. Here there are streams and tokens that God is present, but there it'll be a fountain and it won't simply be drops, but God will be the ocean of our joy. That's the call that we proclaim. That's the call that we hope in. That's the call that awaits us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus Christ, that our hope is secure. And Lord, you are the solid rock of which we build our hope. We pray, Lord, for people who are struggling in doubt, those who believe that you can't use them because of their failures, those that think that their time has passed and they're just waiting to finish out this world. Give us an inspired and challenging view of your call on our lives. And as a church, Lord, give us your wisdom and your faith to commend the greatness of God in Jesus Christ to all peoples and all generations in Augusta and around the world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.